0: Amen. Well, as you as you sit down, if you have a Bible or you're uh, with you or one on your phone, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter seven. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you as you get situated, I want to just uh, invite you to come in, and take part in something. And that's on Thursday night. Here we're having a, an extended time of worship. Four times a year, we do these worship nights where we gather together. There's uh, there's no time constraint in terms of having to worry about the next service coming in and turning things over. And we just get the opportunity to spend time praising the Lord in song and spending time in prayer. Uh, Brian and his team do a fantastic job of planning and, and facilitating those evenings. And so we're having one of those this Thursday uh, here in the sanctuary. I want to invite you to come and take part of that. They really are uh, very special times together. So uh, put that on your calendar know that it's coming up on Thursday. We'll be here uh, at 7 o'clock. You'll get more information on that this week. But want to invite you to come in and take part in that. They are, they are wonderful, wonderful times, slow times for us together in the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you've been with us over the course of this year, uh, you know that what we're in the middle of doing is, is walking our way through uh, what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Our our mission statement here is building devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and we're defining that over the course of this year, and we're doing so through five little phrases or five terms, that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is gospel-centered, humbly unified, mission-driven, pursuing holiness, and disciple-making. And Romans is the means by which we are putting skin on what it means to live a gospel-centered life. And so we'll continue that today by looking at the the back half of Romans chapter 7. But at various times throughout the year, uh, we're stopping to talk about these other four phrases and doing so where they fit logically within the book. And so we've already stopped once and talked about what it means to be mission-driven. And if you want a picture of that just over the past couple of weeks, we've had children and students who have uh, taken the message of the hope of the gospel to various places. Our, our children's uh, ministry, our Truth Seekers program, uh, those outgoing fifth graders, incoming sixth graders were in Kentucky for a week. Our student ministry took a group of students and volunteers to Japan to share the gospel in an unreached place. And a just a perfect picture from our young people of what it means to be compelled by the gospel to share the message of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it to the ends of the earth. And uh, I love the model and the precedent that they set routinely for our church, that it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, once you receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been sent. It is your responsibility to carry the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that model for those uh, within our student ministry and our children's ministry, and the volunteers that took part over the last couple of weeks is something that that we should all look at. We should all cheer on, and we should all then be partnering with them in doing in our local little spheres of influence, but also in opportunities to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so. Um, they don't know that I'm gonna do this, but if you're someone who is a part of either of those two trips, will you just raise your hand real quick? Yes, yes. Sure, we can applaud. I can't, I can't encourage you enough, rest of the family here, to find those individuals and ask to hear the stories about those trips. I'm, I'm just kind of starting to hear about what happened in Japan and what happened in Kentucky and the work that the Lord did in those places, bringing people out of darkness into light is absolutely remarkable, um, of planting seeds of the gospel and building relationships, and just amazing, amazing things. And so I encourage you to find those individuals, ask them about it. They're a picture of what it is to be mission-driven, compelled by the, just the grace of the Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ to go and share that message We spent about a month talking about what it is to pursue holiness, and we're actually still in the middle of that conversation because that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about. And so if you've got your Bible open, you're in the book of Romans, I'm actually going to flip back to the beginning here and give a quick overview of what Paul has said in Romans up to this point. So if you haven't been with us, this will help catch you up. Romans 1, 1 through 17 are an introduction to the letter. Paul is just stating who he is and why it is that he's writing. And then beginning in Romans 1, verse 18, is the first of two peaks, if you will. Picture the mountains in Colorado. You're going to climb two peaks that are linked together by a valley in the middle. Romans 1:18 begins the climb to the first peak. And the climb is, the ascent is, the challenge is that you have a problem that you cannot solve that problem is sin. You can't solve it by yourself. In fact, for two chapters, from the middle of chapter one to the middle of chapter three, Paul spells out in great, almost painful detail, just how deep the problem of sin runs in all of humanity. And then you arrive at the summit. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 31. And what you see is that God graciously provided the sacrifice necessary for your salvation. And that sacrifice is Jesus Christ. You've been reading all about humanity's sin and then you arrive in Romans 3.21 and you hear this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the peak, the summit of mountain number one, that you had this problem you couldn't solve and God solved it for you. He provided the sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And then you kind of work yourself back down toward the valley. Romans 4 is this incredibly beautiful truth that this has always been the means by which God has brought righteousness to sinful humanity by grace through faith. And Abraham is the example of that. Romans chapter 5 is like being down in the valley. And he spells out all these beautiful benefits of having been justified by grace through faith in Christ. That you've got grace in which to stand in the presence of the Lord. That you've had Christ's righteousness imputed to you. It's not just that God now kind of thinks of you as not being sinful. It's that you literally have the righteousness of Christ handed, given to you. You live and move and stand in Christ's righteousness. And then you get to chapter six and we start climbing the second peak. And it's all about this new life in Christ. All who are justified by Christ have new life in Christ. That's what Romans six, seven, and eight are all about. And Romans six presents the next problem. You have a problem that you can't solve and the problem hasn't changed it's sin except for now in terms we're not talking in terms of salvation we're talking in terms of sanctification that is one who's been saved by grace through faith you have union with Christ and therefore you should you ought to bear the image of Christ in the way that you live and yet we all understand when we take a look inward at our own hearts sin still exists and we can't just overcome it by brute force. And that's what Romans 7 is showing to us. You can't do this on your own. And then Romans 8 is going to provide for us the answer, that God graciously provided the spirit necessary for your sanctification. And the back half of Romans 8 is down into the valley again and all the wonderful benefits of that spirit. So that's where we are in a big sense, in a more localized sense here, before we jump into Romans seven fourteen, Paul has spelled out for us in Romans 6 that it's illogical and impossible for us to live in sin any longer as those who have been saved by grace through faith. It's impossible because of our union with Christ. It's illogical because you have this new master. You're no longer slave to sin. You're a slave to Christ, and then you get to Romans 7, and Paul's answering a uniquely Jewish question. In Romans six fourteen, he said, you are no longer under the law, you're under grace. And at that point, every Jewish Christian reading this letter in Rome would have raised their hand and said, hold on, how can this be? How, how can you tell me that I'm not under the law any longer? I understand that I'm not saved by following the law, I can see that, but... If I'm supposed to bear the image of God, aren't I then obligated to uphold the law for my sanctification? Isn't that what this is all about? How can you say I'm not under the law any longer, Paul? And so Romans 7, he starts answering that particular question. In Romans 7, one to six, he said, well, in Christ, because Christ fulfilled the law and then died on the cross and you have union with Christ, you died in him on the cross. And because of that, you're free from the law. And then in Romans 7, uh, Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, Paul says, and it's not that the law was bad. It's that you're sinful. The law wasn't broken. You are. If you were here last week when Randy taught, he used the illustration of like an MRI or an X-ray machine or a CAT scan or something. You get put into one of those things. It reveals, let's say, that you have a broken bone. The doctor pulls that out and reads it. You don't say, wait a second, I think the machine is broken. You look at it and you say, oh my gosh, I'm broken. That's that's what Paul's saying in Romans 7. The law displays for you, not that it is broken, but that you are. Not that it is insufficient, but that you are. And that leads us to where we'll be today. I wanna approach this morning uh, a little bit like a flight on an airplane. My wife and I were on vacation vacation Last week, and we flew from Atlanta back to Kansas City. And the way that a flight works is that you use a runway to build up some speed, and you take off, and then you fly however far you need to fly, and you descend, and you use a runway to slow back down. That's how we're going to approach today. We're going to start in Romans 7, verse 12, and we're going to use verses 12 and 13 as a runway to get ourselves going. And then uh, verses 14 through 25 are kind of our flight, if you will, our flight pattern. And then we're going to land in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And I just want to tell you what the end is because it's really helpful today. Romans 7 is a discussion all about the law from the beginning of Romans 7 all the way to the end. When people went back to Paul's letter and they put chapter and verse markings in here, they marked off the beginning of chapter 7 because that's where the discussion of the law began. And they marked off the beginning of chapter 8 because the discussion of the law was over. The whole thing in the middle there. All 25 verses of Romans 7 are all about what does the law mean in the life of someone who's a follower of Jesus. And these 12 verses today, people have interpreted a number of different ways over thousands of years. There are really smart people who think that the person that Paul is describing here in these verses is someone who's not saved yet. There are really smart people who think that the person being described here in these verses is someone who is saved. I don't have the time to go into all the nuances of those debates. I'm going to tell you what I think, and that's how we're going to work our way, our way through it. And at the end of this, you can wholeheartedly disagree with me, and I will say, cool. Let's wait till we get to heaven. We can all surround Paul and say, hey, man, help me understand exactly what you meant. And when he lays that out, if I'm wrong, I'll look at you and say... You got me, and if you're wrong, I'll expect you to look at me and say the same thing, and then we can just bask in the glory of the Lord for all of eternity. Sound good? Here's where we're gonna end. The end point today, I think, what Paul is trying to say to the readers of his letter and to us today, what God is saying through this passage of Romans, is that we cannot live as Old Testament believers in our New Testament reality. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we live in light of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a process that is fueled and driven and possible entirely because of the Spirit's power within you, not because of your willpower to obey something outside of you, that being the law or the commands of Scripture. Let's work our way there. Let's start in Romans 7, verse 12, as the runway. So then, Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Paul affirms two things. First, he affirms what every Jewish Christian reading his letter would have affirmed in what every Christian today ought to affirm, and that's that the commands of Scripture, the law of Scripture is good. In fact, in verse 12, he says it's holy, just, and good. We should all affirm that. And then he affirms a second thing in verse 13. It reveals just how broken we are. That's something we should all agree to. That is a good thing. It is gracious of God to alert us to the fact that we need a savior. And it's gracious of God to have provided the savior for us. When you go into the x-ray machine or into the MRI or into the CAT scan or whatever the case might be, and you come out and it reveals a problem, you get out of there and you say to yourself, thank goodness it revealed the problem because now I can be healed. Now I can be fixed. The same is true with the law. It reveals that we need a savior and by the grace of God, he has provided us one in Jesus Christ. Now Romans 7, verse 14 through 25. I'm gonna read the whole thing because I think it's helpful for us to hear it all uh, together. I'm going to stumble through this and then you can go home later today and try to read this out loud cleanly and not get confused. Here's what it says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do I agree that the law or with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. What we need to do is just get our arms around what Paul is attempting to say here. And I will offer my first uh, personal understanding of what I think Paul is doing. We can all imagine a scenario in the future. Just pick one. Let's just pretend you've got a child who's getting ready to go to college They're a senior in high school and they're imagining themselves in college, and you ask them a question about what it's going to be like for them when they're in college. They would put themselves into that place and start using the pronoun I. They would maybe even talk in the present tense. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I don't think he is describing his literal, everyday, felt experience. I think he's offering what is called a, what tense is called the dramatic present. He's putting himself into a situation and speaking as if he is already there. And so in that place, he makes an opening statement. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. And those two things are gonna be what kind of form the outline of everything that he says in the rest of this passage. Verses 15, 16, and 17 run parallel to verses 18, 19, and 20. There's some sort of statement of knowledge. The beginning of 15, Paul says, I do not understand what I am doing. In verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good lives in me. And then he goes on to explain that knowledge statement Uh, in the rest of verses 15, 16, and 17, and then again in 18, 19, and 20. In 15, 16, and 17, he says, I don't practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. If I'm doing what I don't want to do, then the law must be good, because I don't want to do it, and it tells me not to, and I don't want to, but I do it anyway. Crystal clear. And then in verse 17, he says, it must not be me that's doing it. It has to be the sin that lives in me. In verses 18, 19, and 20, he explains it this way. I desire to do what is good, but I have no ability to do it. I don't do the good I want to do, but instead the evil I don't want to do. So if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it has to be because sin lives in me. There are some big similarities that Paul is pointing out as he works through those two parallel passages. The law is a good thing. He's already affirmed that throughout the chapter. He affirms it here again. It tells me to do good things. I can't or I don't do them. It tells me not to do evil things. Those are the things that I do. And then a fourth is, sin lives in my flesh, and despite my knowledge of the goodness of the law, I cannot overpower the desires of my flesh. Paul walks those out kind of in this circular fashion for six verses. And then he's going to move on in verse 21. But I want to stop at this point and offer... uh, three different uh, applications of this text that I think are incorrect. So if you're taking notes, make sure you write in big words, incorrect. Because if you walk away with these as the correct things, I will have failed miserably this morning. The first one is this. It is incorrect to apply this text by saying, the Christian life is a life of constant defeat. That cannot be the case. Let's just speak kind of practically if that's what this we're saying, you're just stuck in this place where you can never get victory over sin, then there's no hope for your daily life. Yes, you've been saved, which is an eternally wonderful thing, but the whole life to the full thing that Jesus talks about is never actually going to become tangible reality. And that cannot be the case. Jesus promised that we could have life and have it to the full. Even if you just back up into Romans 6, Paul has made the same thing clear. Romans 6, verse 4, We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a newness of life. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. One way that some people look at this passage and interpret it is to say that Paul is describing the everyday normative life of a mature believer, presumably using himself as the example. I don't agree with that entirely. There's another way that you can interpret this and say Paul's talking about someone who's not a Christian. I don't agree with that at all. A person who has not been saved cannot make the kinds of statements about the law that Paul is making, that the law is good, that it is holy and just, that he delights in the law in his mind. Someone who's not saved would not make those statements. On the flip side, someone who has been saved cannot live a life of constant defeat. Paul's made that clear. And so I think there's a third option here. I think that Paul is addressing someone who has been saved but is in a particular situation and Paul's addressing that for his readers and it gives us some nuance, which we'll talk about as we keep going. But the Christian life is not a life of constant defeat. So we can't apply this and say, well, I just, I'm slave to my sin, so I can't ever get past it. The second incorrect application of this is to say that the good and the sin that are inside of you are two separate forces. That idea is dualism and dualism is not biblical. Let's walk out the logical endpoints of that. Dualism says that there are these two competing forces in the world, and then subsequently in each individual, that are battling for victory. They're battling for victory in the big scheme of things, in the world, and in eternity, and they're battling for victory in the life of every single individual. You can think of it as like yin and yang, and the battle's up in the air. Who is going to win? Now, on the one side, that sounds kind of nice because then we can look at the evil in the world or the sin in our lives and say, well, it's not really me. It's this second evil force that exists in the world or inside of me. And because of that, I don't really need to worry about it. That's not what Paul is getting at. Your sin absolutely dwells in your flesh. And God has dealt with the eternal consequences of it in Christ on the cross. And now he wants to sanctify all of you, not just some half of you, not a part of you. He wants to sanctify every piece of you. And he's got jurisdiction over everything, so he can absolutely do it. Let's walk out the dualism thing a little bit further. If there are two forces and they're equally powerful and they're both at work, then it stands to reason that evil could win. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've read the end of the book, you know that that's impossible. Evil cannot win. God won on the cross through Jesus Christ and he will win when Christ returns. We know that it's not the case, that evil has any chance here, that sin has any shot, that Satan has a chance. And I would go so far as to say, Satan knows that in the end, he is going to lose. He's fighting a losing battle, but he's gonna take prisoner every person he can on his way to defeat. One popular way to kind of illustrate this idea over uh, the last 70 or 80 years has been to use an image from World War II. And it's the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. On D-Day, the Allied forces stormed the beaches in Normandy, and at the end of that interaction, victory was certain. We were going to win the war, but there were a lot of battles after that for us to actually arrive at VE Day, victory in Europe, when the war was over and victory was officially declared. It was done on the beach. It finished at VE Day, and there was a lot of fighting in between. We don't live in some sort of dualistic world where evil has a chance. It was won, not just on the cross, in eternity, It won't be finished until Jesus comes back and uh, all of sin is put to a final end and there will be a lot of fighting in the middle. Make sense? There's not a dualism thing here. Let me sum up both of these first two incorrect applications with a quote. It comes from a New Testament scholar and professor named Guy Waters. He's speaking about the life of a believer and he says, though sin may remain, it cannot reign and that's absolutely true. Sin might remain in your life. We have flesh. We are fleshy, Paul says, but it cannot reign over you. Roll on with the passage. I'm in verse 21. Over the last few verses here, Paul gives a series of what seem like irreconcilable differences. Verse 21 is the first, the first one. And it sounds like there are almost two people involved. I discovered this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. Uh, it's like there are two things battling for supremacy, two, not forces, people battling for supremacy inside of him. The one that wants to do good, but the one that recognizes that evil's there and can't do good. Illustrate quickly. It's been really hot recently. The grass in the Fritzen family yard is just dying. There's the me that knows I should water it and the me that doesn't want to pay the water bill, Right? It seems irreconcilable. Paul continues, there are two laws at work, verses 22 and 23. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, the first one, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. And they're just battling. And Paul says, it feels like they're irreconcilable in this projected sort of scenario. Interestingly, that phrase, taking me prisoner, uh, literally, if you translate it, means at the spear. There are these two laws. And the second one that's in my flesh is waging war against the law of my mind. And it has me at the end of the spear. It's like we've wrestled. It's gotten me to the ground. It's put its spear to my neck. And it is saying, if you do anything other than I tell you, I will plunge this into you. He says, that's the kind of battle that's waging here. It's like I'm at the end of the spear here when it comes to the law of sin. Then in verses 24 and 25, he blurts out two sort of uh, exclamations. The first one seems like comes out of this place of frustration. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the second one is this exclamation of praise. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's this lament and then there's this praise. There's this frustration and yet this gratefulness that seem irreconcilable. And then at the end of verse 25, Paul pulls together all of Romans 6 and all of Romans 7. And he says, so then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. There was this slavery imagery in Romans 6 and he brings it back. In my mind, I'm a slave to the law. That's where I want to be. In my flesh, I'm a slave to sin. And it all seems irreconcilable. And unfortunately, what we tend to do when we look at this passage in Romans is we want to lift it out, this 12 verse stretch, and just deal with it by itself and not think about anything that came before it or anything that comes after it. And if you were to just stop there, you would be tempted to think the Christian life is a life of defeat that good and sin are these two separable forces inside of me that I, I simply cannot do anything about. And it's possible that the evil could win all the time. But there's a final incorrect application. And that's that the commands of Scripture are useless. Paul's been refuting that over and over and over again. This is not true. He's moving his readers toward a particular place. He's moving us toward understanding that as well. I want to illustrate... This whole section was something that will resonate with all of us, and that is food. Do you eat? <laughs> I eat. Sometimes I eat too much. Sometimes I get into patterns where I'm not eating the kinds of things I wish I were eating. And so I tell myself I'm gonna go on some, some kind of diet. And the way it is that we know if we should be eating something or we shouldn't be eating something is that we use food labels. We flip the package over, we see how many calories, how much fat, how much sugar, how much sodium is in a type of food. And that tells us, is this a good thing that we should eat or a bad thing that we shouldn't eat? And if you were to just apply a dieting framework here to what Paul is saying in Romans 7, 14 through 25, I can sum it up by saying, the food label tells me I shouldn't eat it, but I eat it anyway. The food label tells me I should eat it, but it doesn't taste good and I don't eat that thing, who will deliver me from this body of donuts? Right? Oh, what wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this? Right? What Paul is trying to point out In all of Romans 6 and in all of Romans 7, and then what he's going to answer in Romans 8 is that as someone who has been justified by Christ, we ought to bear the image of Christ in the world. And if you think the key to doing that is to just pick up the law and move it from the means of salvation into the means of sanctification, you won't be happy. Because you can't do it. You might agree that the law is good and you might go to bed every single night thinking to yourself, I know that the commands of scripture are good and it tells me to do this particular thing and I just can't do it. And then you'll wake up the next morning and think to yourself, I know that the law is good and it tells me I should do this particular thing, but I never do it. And Paul says, you will get to the end of all of that and you will be left thinking to yourself, what a wretched man I am who will deliver me from this body of death. The commands are good. They are loving and holy. They're these just guideposts and instructions and guardrails that point us to what life should look like and how it is to best function, but they could not save us, nor can they sanctify us. They were powerless to save us because of the presence of our sin, and they are powerless to sanctify us because of the presence of our sin. Martin Lloyd Jones sums it up by saying this, what humanity needs is not knowledge, it is power. What you need from scripture, what you need from the Lord, what you need from some, me, what you need from me on a Sunday morning is not primarily for me to stand up here and say these are all the commands of scripture and this is what they mean and you should just follow them. We would all walk out of here and say I totally agree, but I can't do it. What you need is some sort of power that enables you to do that thing. And so Paul didn't stop writing at the end of Romans 7. In fact, Paul didn't even know this was going to be split into chapters. He just rolled right into his next thought. And it picks up in what we have is Romans 8. Therefore, this is one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.3 is to the second mountain peak here what Romans 3.21 was to the first. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, two of the most beautiful words in all of scripture, God did he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have a problem. And it's that the law couldn't sanctify or save us because of our sin. The law cannot sanctify us because of our sin. God's provided an answer. For our salvation, he provided the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. For our sanctification, he's provided the power of the Spirit inside every single believer. Two peaks in Romans, both solved by God. Both solved in the gospel. What does it mean to live a gospel-centered life? Well, in relation to your sanctification, it means you look to the exact same place for the power that you look to for salvation. What Jewish... Roman Christians needed to be told was that the law could not sanctify them, but the Holy Spirit can. What Christians today need to be told is that brute strength and this like some sort of superhuman willpower to the commands of scripture is never going to sanctify you, but the Spirit can. This is not a life of constant defeat. This is not a life where scripture is useless. This is a life where there's power and there's victory, and it comes through the Holy Spirit. The law couldn't save you. Don't shift it into a place and think that it is going to sanctify you. The grace of God saved you. The grace of God will sanctify you. An Old Testament believer would say to themselves, okay, I guess in order to bear the image of Christ, I just do the best job I can to uphold the commandments of the law, the, the, uh, the commandments of Scripture. A New Testament reality is that Pentecost happened. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon every person who's been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and now His grace that saved you will sanctify you. So how do we correctly apply this? Let me give three of these as we close. The first is that God provides everything that life in Christ demands. He graciously provided the sacrifice necessary for your salvation, that was Jesus. And He has graciously provided the spirit necessary for your sanctification, the Holy Spirit. So to revisit an illustration from two weeks ago, stop stabbing at that pot roast with the fork of the law. It was never intended to do what you're trying to make it do. Stop stabbing at this beautiful pork roast with a fork of your own willpower and effort and start allowing the spatula of grace to lift you onto the other plate. He's provided that for you. He's given it to you by grace in the Holy Spirit. He's provided, let it work. The second application is this, rely on the Spirit, not on your will. This is where we're headed in all of Romans chapter 8, and we're going to spend a few weeks there. If you've been coming uh, up to this point, and maybe you've been with us as we've talked about pursuing holiness, or you've been with us in chapter 7, and you think to yourself, yes, I read these verses and I see myself there. Good golly, keep coming back. If you read Romans 7, 14 to 25 and you think to yourself, this is exactly what my life looks like. I go to bed thinking this. I wake up thinking this. You're living like one of these Jewish Roman believers. You think the law is going to sanctify you. And your frustration comes from the fact that it cannot do that. And so it's like you're running on a treadmill, going nowhere, moving your legs a lot, given a lot of effort, but you're just not making any progress. The road to sanctification, the act of pursuing holiness, is active submission. It requires you to act, but it requires that that action is out of submission to the Holy Spirit, a reliance upon Him. What is step one in addressing the issue of your sin? It's abiding in Christ. Retreating not into the laws and the rules outside of you, the just the kind of rote commands of scripture, but into the spirit that lives within you, because that's where the power is. The power is not in the law, it's in the Holy Spirit. Galatians, Paul says the exact same thing. In Galatians 4, 6, he says, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And then he follows that up in 5.16, and he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Not beat yourself into submission to the law and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Last but not least, we cannot live as Old Testament believers in a New Testament reality. What Paul describes here is absolutely a feeling we can all resonate with. We have moments where we see ourselves in Romans 7, 14 to 25, but it should not be the normative everyday life of a mature follower of Jesus Christ. Instead, as we're wrestling with our own sin, as we're struggling with our own flesh, we should come back to Romans 7 and be reminded that my willpower and obedience was never the thing that was supposed to sanctify me in the first place. The grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit is what is supposed to sanctify me. I think Paul is describing what it looks like when we find ourselves in sin and we look to the wrong thing to overcome it. When we look to the law and our own willpower to get us through sin, then what Paul is describing in these verses is exactly what life feels like. When we live as though Pentecost never happened and there's no spirit to sanctify us, then we feel like these verses. We do this all the time. And when we do, we need to sit down and remind ourselves that God graciously provided the spirit necessary for our sanctification. We've had a couple of problems here in Romans. Both of them related to our sin and God provided the answer to our salvation through Jesus and for our sanctification through the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and we're gonna close with um, singing some portion that Brian is going to decide of the song, Worthy of It All. Good luck. Uh, Right before the message, we sang reckless love. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There is no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. He has done everything necessary in order for you to be saved. And then for some reason, we think to ourselves that despite that being true, He has done nothing other than give us a list of rules in order to sanctify us. And that is simply not the case. He's done everything necessary for you to be sanctified as well. And he's provided it to you in the Holy Spirit. And so we sing something like worthy of it all. For from you are all things, Lord. From you is the power to do this. And to you or for you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You've provided everything in order for me to be saved and to be sanctified. I will give all of myself back to you in submission to you as I'm sanctified, not so that the attention is on me, but so that you receive the glory because you are the one that deserves it. You are worthy of it all. Let's stand up and sing together.